Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh. I just wanted to say I miss you guys. I love hearing your incredible I Weighs, and I love sharing them at the end of this podcast as an encouragement really to all of our listeners. And I would love to hear from more of you. If you are comfortable with sharing your I Weigh with me and the rest of the I Weigh community, then you can leave a voicemail or a text at 818-660-5543. Or you can email us your I Weigh at iWeighPodcast at gmail.com. I really love getting them. They make my day. We have wonderful ones like this. I weigh the three humans that I'm helping to raise as good people who will make an impact in our world, who already are. The empathy I try to listen with, the love and devotion I put into my relationship with my husband, my aging father, and my beloved brother, sisters-in-law, nieces and nephews, and friends who are family. The patience I try to have every day with myself as a person forever recovering from disordered eating and body image. It is such a special way to end our show when you share with us like this. So thank you, and please do call or email us. Now on to today's guest. I I was quite nervous for this interview, not just before the interview, but for like the first 15 minutes of the interview. I uh, I always get a bit posher in accent when I am nervous and afraid. And I, was, I kept on catching myself being like, why are you being so fucking posh? Why are you speaking a posh accent? It's some awful, deeply ingrained, uh, classist defence mechanism that I adopted from being a poor kid who was a scholarship child at a rich school. And uh, I, there must be some part of me that I hate <laughs> that goes gets posh when I feel like protective of myself and like I want to show someone that I'm smart. Such a shit side of myself. Hate it so much. So mad at myself. I will work to change it. At least I've identified it in the moment this time I think I relaxed towards the end but apologies in advance for the fact that I was just sweating and I was sweating so much because I love this guest so much and I admire her so much and I've learned so much from her I look up to her so much I'm so fucking intimidated by her it was actually a really big relief to just say that to her in the middle of the interview I feel like we should do that more we should just tell people when they're scaring us and she's not scaring me because she's scary She's scaring me because she's extraordinary. Her name is Sean Fay, and she is a writer, an activist, uh, a leader in social justice. She uh, has a book out called The Transgender Issue that she's just published. Uh, it's been published in the United Kingdom, but it is going to be coming out next year in the US. And it is a masterclass in writing about the liberation of any group. But really, we just don't have enough text about trans people and trans liberation. And what she's done is create a man, like the manifesto as to how to understand trans history, trans rights, how to really look at science more objectively and look at fact more objectively and sensibly. Uh, she dissects all of the hysteria around trans issues and... Um, and she writes in this way that isn't all about her. She's not navel-gazing in this book. She's writing across the kind of, 
entire intersection of different people, different struggles. She is fascinatingly brings up the kind of intersection between trans liberation and, you know, the the reason that that's so hard is partially because of patriarchy, but also massively because of capitalism. And there are similar systems that that oppress trans people, that also oppress immigrants, that also oppress fat people, that also oppress uh, people from different racial and ethnic minorities. It's fascinating. And and listen, I know that a lot of the people who already listen to this podcast are people who probably think, oh, I don't know if I need to read a book about trans people because I'm already pro-trans liberation, right? I'm already uh, someone who stands in solidarity with those people. That's not what this book is for. Of course, this book is for trans people or or people who love and care about trans people. But the thing that makes it extraordinarily valuable is the fact that she's giving us talking points to combat bigotry and ignorance that we may come across in our own friends and family and colleagues. And that is so valuable. It's so rare that someone has the emotional bandwidth after everything they go through as a marginalised person to then also do the emotional labour of writing down all of the things that are going to help us assist them in being fucking free, which they deserve to be. And so buy this book to learn how to destroy this argument once and for all. It's it's going to be, it's it's one of the, it's, I think it might be like the book of our time and I'm not exaggerating. I asked Sean to come onto my podcast very nervously um, to talk to me about the book, some of the issues that we cover so you can see if you're interested in it. And just generally, I think her perspective is just really fascinating. Uh, she's someone you should definitely follow the work of, support her online. Uh, you will just have your mind so expanded. Um, she's very kind of scholarly minded. I think that's also what intimidated me because I've really really can't read very well or very fast and uh I'm just not as smart or educated as she is um but it's just oh what a joy what a gift to have her on this podcast um I've wanted this to happen for ages and there's just so many different parts of the trans experience and trans issues that we speak about and and I hope that you find this episode not just helpful but also deeply hopeful and I hope it it inspires you to jump into action the way it did me and um, and the way I hope it will continue to do so, and I certainly think her book will. So the book is called The Transgender Issue. Her name is Sean Fay, and here she is. Prepare to be blown away. an icon you're an icon and you're on my podcast I feel very grateful hello Jean Fay how are you hi thank you that's so nice I'm very well thank you how are you I'm good are you exhausted your book I mean <laughs> time's bestseller it's being called like the the book that in I think was it Owen Jones who said that when we look back like a hundred years from now or something we will look back at this book as like a defining moment of change in uh, trans issues. Yes, and when he said that, he's a friend of mine. And when he said that, I was like, "Well, you're putting me under quite a lot of pressure." And now I'm I know, and I'm doing it again. I know, I'm amplifying it. it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's exhausting. It is my first book, so I'm not used to a book tour. Also, I think. I, I, when people have asked me, like, you know, a lot of people ask like, your writing process and stuff like that when you do publicity, which I'm doing at the moment. And I don't know how to write a book, not in a lockdown in a pandemic, because I wrote most of the book <laughs> in my teenage bedroom at my mum's house in the first lockdown. So it, it, it's gone from like, 
being a very solitary experience with just me and the text to suddenly all this reaction about 18 months later. And as someone that's used to writing online and doing journalism online where everyone reacts instantly, it's, it's been quite overwhelming, but in a good way. I would say that I was uh, deeply relieved. I was hopeful when I knew that you were writing this book because I have long thought of you as truly just one of the most excellent voices around many issues, but in particular uh, trans liberation. But also I was afraid for you because as we know, the more visible someone becomes, and I know this has also probably been your experience, but... A, the more visible someone becomes, the more vitriol they receive, but also a book like this at a time that is so heated around this discussion, uh, should, should never be called a debate, quote unquote, around this discussion. Uh, I was worried for you that people would go out of their way to try and pick this book apart. And what I feel like, at least from my uh, maybe my echo chamber, but I feel as though uh, this is a book that has been written so in such a bulletproof way that I haven't actually seen anywhere near as much pushback as I was expecting because you have preempted all of the possible kind of arguments mm. against your basic rights and freedom uh, in a way that feels quite impersonal, not to say it's cold, but you're just literally not utilizing your own experience to create, uh, I don't know, to... Um, to invite empathy, you are just using history and fact in this book and it's very hard to defeat you. And so I've been very, very happy to see that it feels like it's opening a lot of eyes. Were you surprised? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you said that because I think that is part of how the kind of, yeah, the, as I say, this it ties to what I said a minute ago about writing in lockdown is I felt I entered a very intense space with it because of lockdown. I wrote every day. I was quite religious about it on the first draft. And I think, yeah, because of the time and, you know, you spent so much time on your own um, during quarantine and things like that. So yeah, I, it became just me being hyper-focused on the text. And I think my mind was racing the whole time. And yeah, I was trying to often preempt every possible criticism <laughs> or every time I sort of like made a assertion about someone would be checking the fuck notes and checking that I'd done it correctly. So in a way I did write in quite a hypervigilant state. Um, and I'm glad that at least that probably has benefited it now. Um, in terms of being worried about me, I think like, I mean, I was worried about it. I think now I'm actually a lot happier. It's been out in the UK two weeks and actually the worst period was about four, the four weeks before publication because it felt like a calm before the storm and the anticipation was much, much worse than the reality. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think it's been interesting. I mean, I, I don't read the reviews. I feel like in, in very classic style, like people like Sally Rooney, who I was reading interviews with her around, because obviously I knew she had a book coming out at the same time as me and I know she doesn't read reviews. And I was like, if it's good enough for Sally Rooney, I'll do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I haven't really read them, but friends kind of tipped me off. And I think interestingly, it's more the kind of left-wing argument that, British press seems to have a problem with more so than the trans stuff but I'm, I'm happy for that because at least at least it means that we're taking the discussion to a different place which is what do you mean by that so people so I think it's that yes some of the like big criticisms have been like the fact that the book argues that and against capitalism that I'm very critical of the prison system and don't really think it can be reformed and think it's just mm -hmm. a blunt instrument we need you know we'd should be thinking about a completely different society. You know, I'm not saying it's not this sort of simplistic argument, say get rid of all prisons now, but it's kind of like we should be thinking about a society where they wouldn't be necessary. 
um, and criticisms of things like policing and hate crime law as ways to tackle transphobia, which I'm critical of because the police are themselves for many different types of people, for particularly people of colour, you know, they can be a source of violence. Um, and so to say that they are going to be our prime defenders against transphobic attacks and um, violence, I don't think works, particularly as most people who in the Britain, we have hate crime laws. So like if you if you do something to someone, crime, and it's motivated by transphobic hate, it's, it's a hate crime. Um, and uh, most hate crimes as recorded by the police are like by teenagers or younger. Um, and when it's people that young, like children, essentially, I don't think the police is the way to solve it. I think education is the way to solve it because clearly, you know, punishing young people who have already somehow acquired bigotry, you know, between the ages of zero and 15. Um, so those sort of things have been more controversial, I would say, because they're, they go to bigger questions about the state, about society. And I use trans people's experience as a way to make more expansive arguments. And I think the British press were all fine with me being like, you know, be kind to trans people and mm-hmm. we deserve better health care. But when it actually came to like, well, what would actually being kinder to trans people look like? What would society need to do? And some of the more radical changes I think would be necessary, not just for trans people, but for lots of marginalised groups. That's what people have seized on. But I would rather that because what we've been seeing in the mainstream media, is certainly in the UK and I know in the US as well, is like an infantile argument. I'd rather argue about like what we do about prisons, which is at least a sophisticated conversation than just arguing about toilets or know, whether or not yeah. people's pronouns are reasonable. Do you know what I mean? It's it's so it's so banal <laughs> that like at least there I feel like if I've got some, you know, if I if, if I've managed to irritate these people more by <laughs> making more radical arguments, at least I've distracted them for a second for talking about the same nonsense they've been regurgitating for probably the last 10 years. I also think, you know, you bring this up in your book um, about the fact that, you know, there is a a strain, <laughs> a strain is a new word that we use now, a strain <laughs> of, of liberals and people on the left who are all for vocalising hashtag trans, trans rights, hashtag trans lives matter, but they're not actually willing to challenge the infrastructures that, uh, so you kind of preempted this in your book that would then actually truly liberate trans people. And I think that um, it's it's really important to call that out because I find my own frustrations with uh, liberals, with some feminists, um, with, I mean, they call themselves feminists, but I think obviously if you don't stand for the rights of trans women, you can't call yourself a fucking feminist, uh, radical or not. Um, and uh, even people on the left, I find there to be still some... Um, like smugness around their own progressiveness to the point where they don't feel the need to look inside of themselves as to whether or not they still have some bias. Do you know what I mean? Like they consider themselves to be so progressive that they don't actually uh, see a lot of their own transphobia. Like a lot of the most transphobic comments that I see in my timeline because I'm very vocal vocal about trans liberation. And so therefore I am a a target, not in the same way that you would be or any other uh, visible trans person, but I'm a target for transphobic people. And I find the vast majority of those people are actually people who consider themselves to be on the left. That's what I'm finding. And a lot of those people are quote unquote feminists, liberal feminists. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, I mean, I think, um, so I think what you've identified there are two almost different things. I think, um, 
So one is, so one, uh, probably the first one is actually the kind of well-meaning ally, um, which is, which is someone that isn't necessarily transphobic or certainly doesn't want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'm kind of critical of a little bit in the book, or or at least what I'm trying to do is push that person onward onto doing a bit more is that I think what's happened is it's become so toxic, this discussion on, particularly on social media, particularly Twitter, we know, but like all, all across different social media channels. And I think what happens is that for some cisgender people, perhaps who you know who really are trying to do their best, is that they've got caught up in that too, and they see Twitter as the main fight, you know, like arguing with these 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 people, these very mm-hmm. progressive bigots, and you know, using hashtags and things like that about saying trans women are women mm-hmm. or whatever. And I know they're well meaning, but it's a bit like you know, I wrote I, again, I wrote the book you know, last, last summer with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement as a white person, I had to think like, what is actually more helpful for me to do here? Like, is it to use hashtags? Or is it like, you know, I felt quite disempowered because it's, you know, with these changes that we're talking about policing and um, state violence against people of colour is, um, black people particularly, is, you know, I, there's nothing I can do, but actually maybe kind of putting myself forward on social media isn't the best way. And there were lots of things that I thought I could do be better, be reading better, you know, thinking about times that it's better to be quiet, thinking about times that maybe I could think about the black people in my life um, and actually listening to what they might need. And that, and that to me is, um, was, was kind of like an analogy for kind of actually like how I, cause I, that's how I went about thinking about it. It was like, well, how do I feel sometimes when I see these people tweeting all these hashtags? And I'm like, do you know mm-hmm. anything about our healthcare? Do you realize that this isn't a big priority? These, you know, fighting these kind of famous transphobes, you know, tweeting something at... J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, yeah. right? Like, yeah. okay, yeah, she, I think she's mistaken on her view on trans liberation. I think it's deeply unhelpful, but she isn't She isn't the primary... It's no. upsetting to trans it's people. It's a lot of treating the symptom rather than the cause, right? Exa- exactly, that's it. And then, mm-hmm. so, so there's that, which I kind of sort of, as you like, call out a bit in the book, is what can we do that's a bit, you know, what's the step further beyond having a go at J.K. Rowling or using a hashtag like trans rights are human rights. What do you do next if you're a cis person? I kind of like, think a lot of people want to know that, but they just don't know. They don't, they're not armed with the information. And why would they be? Because we're a very small minority and unless it touches your life, why would you know? Also, the only times until now that uh, trans people, visibly trans people have been able to actually put their arguments forward often their life stories are reduced to tragedies or sob stories, non-reflective of their true reality uh, stories around trans people. Like it's been, no one's really been allowed to get to the point of actually having the conversations of the systemic oppression and the ways in which that intersects with all different other types of oppression that we aren't seeing the similarities between. And so I think that it's so important that a book like this comes out where people aren't able to change the entire conversation that you're trying to bring by sensationalizing your life story. I think it was so incredibly smart to to instead take this to other people's stories and make this a broader conversation and also show the intersection of trans existence and to show the stories that don't normally get told because often we see kind of either more privileged people who are trans given Mm. more airtime in um, the media I really appreciate that yeah, th- uh, thank you. And I think, um, yeah, it's interesting, actually, that I know that a lot of people who have reviewed the book, because I do put small, like, it's not a memoir. Anecdotes, I'm very, yeah. Uh, yeah, anecdotes. But what's interesting is how many people, cis people who review it, and particularly, like, yeah, quite maybe cis people who, you know, are book reviewers, but they don't really know anything about this issue at all. They, they're they obsessed with the, 
the small bits I put about like loads of reviews have sprinkled it with things about my life and often do make me sound quite like tragic, like talking about being bullied at school. And I just think it's interesting that there's still, even though I've been like, this isn't a memoir, my life is fine. Because why, I guess I should explain to listeners why I kind of avoided a memoir is in terms of like the British class system, like I'm, I'm pretty solidly middle class. I had, you know, a pretty like comfortable, I wasn't rich, but I was comfortable upbringing. I, went, I got scholarship to a really nice school, you know, all these things which mean that I'm not really reflective. And I guess what I felt if I was going to write a book when I was sort of encouraged to write a book on this issue was I was like, well, let's not centre me and rather use the access that I knew I had that some of these interviewees would not have spoken to a cis person, but they might have spoken to me because I was a prominent writer in the community. And I think that comes with a certain level of trust that they knew I wasn't going to screw them over, which a lot of these people, their stories are so sensitive, they'd be really, they wouldn't talk to a cis journalist, for example. Um, And then I was going to just follow up on your point about the kind of um, left liberal transphobes who some of whom identify as feminists. And I think that's for probably your American listeners. I think like that's really common in the UK. Like We really are like a hub of this like feminist left wing liberal kind of, yeah, type of transphobia. And it's a little bit different, right, to what you see with... um, the Christian right or Republicans, which like that's usually like very similar to how homophobia worked is that like it's often a sort of like religious sometimes um, objection, but certainly a quite a patriarchal objection to trans people is that we're doing gender wrong. We're a bit like gay people. We're freaks. We're degenerates. And there's that just like repulsion when it's wearing like a feminist mask. I would argue that there's still a lot of the kind of revulsion. Like I only take, you know, if you look at some of these people, despite them claiming to be feminists, the first thing they do is mock trans women's appearance, like very much go into kind of body horror and disgust about trans bodies and things like that. So actually, I still think it's a mask that a lot of them are wearing. But to be kinder to some of them, I think it comes, it can come from a very different place. It can come from a place, I think, if we're being generous, for some women who have probably been quite badly traumatised by cis men, who um, have experienced some of them are domestic violence survivors, some of them are lesbians. Um, You know, if we were going to be empathetic to those women, I think it's that perhaps it's a misdirected anger, is that um, in the UK, you know, for the last 10 years, we had austerity following the the recession that started in 2008, and our Tory Mm. government was very brutal about kind of cutting services for women, crisis services, rape crisis services, domestic violence crisis services. So, you know, now the women's sector that's supposed to support the most vulnerable women in the UK is kind of on, on its knees. And I think that a lot of women have feel very angry and they've, you know, they've essentially yeah, had a lot of lifelines taken from them by economic policy for the last 10 years in the UK. And I'm sure in many states in the US as well. And so sometimes I think there's a scarcity mentality and um, a pessimism about like the ability to change society and to stop particularly cis male violence against women and girls. And, um, and I think what happens is it becomes a sort of like, it mutates into a sort of paranoia about, um, well, we can't change men, but what we can do is defend womanhood against trans men and trans masculine people who seem to be leaving it mm-hmm. and trans women who seem to be entering it. Um, and I think that becomes a preoccupation. And unfortunately, with a lot of the dynamics of social media, with online radicalization, quite quickly, it can become quite obsessive uh, yeah. and quite black and white and unfortunately quite um, aggressive and abusive in some cases. Yeah. And not to um, not to 
diminish this in any way, but we see a similar pattern with the media when it comes to immigration, right? Rather mm. than encouraging the people to challenge the government that are underfunding every single sector of public service, we they just uh, shift the um, the gaze onto this minority of people who are desperately in help, who are often the ones who, you know, as we saw last year, the people who stepped up most uh, in the pandemic were often people who had been at some point immigrants over to the United Kingdom, you know, even, mm. I'm not going to say his name, but even one of the more prominent assholes on British television was one to, uh, to call out like and praise uh, immigrants in this country who were massively responsible for keeping Britain alive last year. Um, and so it is a very tried and tested and devastatingly successful media model to just distract us. Yeah. Well, everyone loves a scapegoat, and I and I and I say that in the introduction of the book. I mean, obviously, that's I, um, you know, trans people are not the only scapegoat that that the media targets. And I do. I mention immigrants. I think Muslims in general, mm-hmm. um, BLM, fat acceptance movement, um, uh, Gypsy Roman traveller communities in the UK, and uh, and like feminists who challenge state violence against women. So things like Sisters Uncut and the Kill the Bill protests we saw earlier this year in London. Um, basically feminist groups that are resisting kind of more state surveillance like they all become targets and and it's it's just it's a very ancient method and i use the framework of what's called a moral panic which um was a kind of term coined by sociologists uh in the 20th century to describe a very specific phenomenon that's always existed and probably in European and Western culture, probably anti-Semitism is the archetype for it, is the idea of an enemy within. Um, and yeah, it's a very effective um, way to kind of create um, a, a divided population by picking on a minority that has no power realistically and managing to create a narrative that they are actually secretly very powerful and that they are a threat to you and that they're growing and that they're trying to recruit new members. And certainly in the British media, what we've seen for the last like three or four years, I would say, is, uh, yeah, and the Murdoch media is this idea of the trans lobby um, that controls the government. We control the police. <laughs> you know, we control the NHS. And You're coming reality, to get the kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. We're in, we're in schools. And this is about like 0.6% of the population. And the reality is, is that, in the, you know, certainly in the UK, I know that there are some elected officials in the US now, which is great, state senators and things. But um, in, the UK, in the UK, we've never had a, a trans MP, um, openly, and we've never had a trans. Even like we've got devolved parliaments in in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, no members there. Like the most is local councillors. So like, just, and we've got no trans staff journalists at, the, at any real newspaper apart from wow. maybe one at the Guardian who writes about sport. There's no trans TV commissioners. There's trans high court judges. There's never been. Like so, where is this lobby? It's you know, but people believe it clearly. I mean, like there are people that really believe that we're secretly powerful behind the scenes, and then the the irony is that we're actually nowhere to be seen. Um, and when we are, it's like, you know, maybe as a model, maybe as a freelancer, maybe doing a diversity campaign, but it's not like in real seats of power, um, which is what some of the public are being led to believe by the media. Yeah, I mean, another, I mean, obviously we are not going to spend more than two minutes talking about toilets because uh, it's truly really <laughs> the least the least of the issues that you are trying to uh, bring awareness to. But I just like always would like to reiterate to my um to the listeners of this podcast that, you know, for example, with um, one of the models that the media can use is suddenly last year bringing up 
uh, trans women being allowed into women's toilets and women's spaces as if that hasn't already been happening for 10 years beforehand, as if it's about to happen now and we have to fight now to stop that from happening. I think it was 2010 when that became... Am I wrong? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was protected so- under the Equality Act, but the reality is that it was going on for like almost a century. You know, like it's been going oh, on exactly. for almost a century in the UK. Exactly. But I mean, like, I, I. But there was no rise. My point is that there was no rise in that ten years, right? Yeah, in in no, like violence against women in in women's public toilets. So it was such an. It was so fascinating to have been in my twenties watching that bill passed, seeing that nothing nothing changed, and also it had been going on forever. And I was, yeah. Oh, I mean, the majority of us who are like caring, thinking, empathetic people know that it's much unsafer for a trans woman, let's just focus on trans women for now, to use a men's toilet than it is for them. It's not that we're unsafe, it's that they are unsafe if they are not in our spaces because men can be quite dangerous. Yeah, uh, of course. Historically. And, and there's just a point where it becomes ludicrous. I mean, it would just be like, you know, it would be ludicrous for me to... In fact, I have, I'm sure, you know, like I'm pretty sure that drunk a few times after I transitioned probably in gay clubs, I've walked, probably muscle memory, walked into men's toilets and people shout at you to leave. Like there's a point where like people, like the men do not want you. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just ludicrous. It's I mean, ludicrous. Like, again, it's this immediate attribution of like um, ill intent to trans women. And mm-hmm. yeah, and I can say that someone that's been there myself, um, there is no trans woman, particularly one that's someone that transitions, you know, post-puberty where like, there's going to be some point in your transition where you're going to have to make that decision about maybe using a female toilet. And obviously, especially if you're early in a transition process or whatever, that's terrifying. I mean, you'd rather not, you'd rather die. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's like, it's that all the men's. And, and, um, and, and yeah, and actually that trans woman is usually t- 10 times more afraid than uh, anyone else around her. And I think, I think um, yeah, and, it, and, it, and I just think it taps into this real fear that, which I can understand is justified for some women, right? Is that like, um, yeah, the idea of male voyeurism or, or predatory male behavior in society. But the re- the reality is, is that like that goes on regardless of whether or not trans women are able to go about freely in public. That, mm-hmm. that happens anyway. And I'm not saying that, oh, it doesn't matter. It happens anyway. But actually most of the kind of like real problems of male violence are like, are, men women know it's men that they've gone on dates with it's men that they're chatting to at a bar it's men that they're married to it's men that they live with or their family um and actually this kind of phantom thing of this like i don't know a man that's <laughs> pretending to be a trans woman to follow women into toilet you know I, I can understand what it taps into but i to me i just can't believe that really people buy into it for more than a second This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're gonna get that hour 
where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. We had Dr. Jackson Katz on this uh, podcast who was just talking about the systemic like base of uh, of men's violence against women. And so that's what we should be tackling right now instead of just again focusing on trans people, specifically trans women. That's a prevalent argument throughout your book is like, let's just be logical here and, yeah. and, and, and remedy the actual base of these fears rather than just uh, diverting them elsewhere. Yeah. The other thing there as well is that what happens in those narratives is it strips trans women of our experiences of the same kinds because mm-hmm. what I argue for in the book is that like, actually like six, like in the UK, 16% of trans women say that they've experienced domestic violence from a partner in the past year. It's that like, that's, you know, we're talking about similar rates and I just know anecdotally amongst my own friends and I have like cisgender women friends and trans women friends, obviously, you know, is that the, the things that we're kind of facing and, you know, it's again, it's the same thing. It's like, if you go on a date with someone, you have to tell your friends where you are. And, you know, the, these things are the same kind of concerns and anxieties that we have in public as cisgender women do. And um, one thing I used to do when I was talking about refuges and domestic violence services, when I used to work for the UK LGBT charity Stonewall, and we do training for women sector charities, is sometimes I would just use myself as an example. And I'd be like, right, every boyfriend I've ever had post-transition his girlfriends before me and after me have all been cisgender. Like, luckily, my ex-boyfriends were all within reason nice men, <laughs> not abusive <laughs> men. But had they, had they been abusive to, like, any one of us, they'd been abusive to the others, like, that men repeat those patterns. So why would it be that all the other girlfriends, if, if it was an abusive man, they would be able to access women's services, but I wouldn't? Even though it had been the same man, the same pattern of violence, the same, you know, gendered relationship... Why is it that because of basically my chromosomes, 
I should be denied some kind of support or solidarity. And that tended to have a breakthrough moment, I felt, <laughs> with some of these women. That, 100%. Like, you know, when, when it was put like that, because I think it's often that we're dehumanized and we're like our experiences of the same anxieties that a lot of women have are kind of erased in these discourses. And that's really, that's really detrimental to trans women as well. Something, something I really want to talk about with you is, you know, you've kind of talked about other issues that kind of feel parallel to the arguments for trans liberation. Um, and we, you know, you cover multiple different issues in the book and I would love to talk about those intersections and patriarchy and capitalism <laughs> that are at the helm of all of these issues this just overarching kind of system of oppression that impacts everyone and we're made to feel like all of these things are separate issues but actually they're deeply deeply interconnected at the source of patriarchy and capitalism I would like to understand more about that please <laughs> <laughs> nice simple question Okay, so yeah. So Sorry. The, so, so, <laughs> so if we, yeah, so if we, I'll start the sort of top down, these kind yeah. of ideas of these structures. So capitalism, obviously, is an economic system that we're all living under in, in its late stages, hopefully, um, where, you know, a small group of people who own what we call the means of production, you know, the things that we all need to, to have a functioning society, the res resources, whether they're the resources used to manufacture, whether the resources are oil, you know, there is a very small group of people at the top that own those resources and then they employ everyone else and everyone else sells their labour. That's the system that we live under. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we all need, most of us who aren't part of that elite group need to work to live. Now, some people obviously live, the, the conditions of their work are quite good. You know, people like you and me mm -hmm. <laughs> work under pretty good conditions probably mm -hmm. paid better than a lot of the people in the world um you know afforded a lot more kind of um comfort essentially and obviously that can go right down to people whose work is work in appalling conditions and one of the ways that capitalism works is that we need like for example the, the heterosexual nuclear family is part of how the capitalist system functions and traditionally that was like you have a man and a woman the woman does all the kind of home labor and looks after the children and raises them. And the man goes out to work and produces the labor for capitalism. Mm -hmm. Obviously with feminism and kind of advancement in recent years, like women go out to work, but actually if you still are in a nuclear family and you're heterosexual, like most studies show that women still do all the child care or they, if they're really rich, they outsource it to nannies <laughs> um, and cleaners. But like women are still, there's still a whole lot of work that we feminize and say, this is women's work. And men we saw that it. statistically last year. In yeah. particular, that was really, that really hit home last year. Yeah, yeah, it did. Well, like, even like, yeah, even quite privileged white middle-class women in like Islington and North London were like, you know, because they couldn't have their cleaners and they couldn't have their nannies, they would have to work from home and still do all the childcare and the husband would <laughs> do exactly what he was doing before. Um, but yeah, so the reason I'm explaining all this, because you think, well, it's got to do with trans people. So, right, so, so this is how patriarchy and capitalism mix, is that they're two systems that work in tandem with each other because... For both to work, we need a way of dividing up men and women. And for capitalism, that's useful because it's like, this is women's labor, this is men's labor, this is men's responsibilities. And so you need a clear idea of how to divide men and women. And then patriarchy is a system built around oppressing primarily, you know, women because they're the largest group. And cisgender women are the largest group of women. And obviously they're the, you know, historically women is understood as tied up with reproduction. I've always accepted that. And so it's the fact that, you know, one half of the human race most of whom identifies women, but some aren't women, um, have the capacity to reproduce. And so patriarchy is a structure that's partly, you know, in large part built around controlling that, is that one, 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 one side of the population can control, can, um, can, yeah, can 
perform reproductive labor can like gestate and give birth to a child. And so male dominance is often about controlling that and using women as a resource. But for that to, for that system to work, you again need a really clear idea of who's a man, who's a woman, and that needs to be tied then to biology. And where trans people complicate that, right, is that like, we know that gender variant people, people who have, exi- have existed that we might call trans now, certainly existed as a term for 100 years, have existed throughout human society. And there have always been people who led cross-gender lives and they're repugnant to patriarchy because what we essentially do is undermine the idea that like the biology you're born with defines your social role, designs how you should behave, what you should look like. And of course, feminist cisgender women have defied that too. And gay people have defined that because one of the one of the key tenets of patriarchy is that we're all supposed to be heterosexual. So anyone that sleeps, a woman that sleeps with women or a man that sleeps with man, men or someone that sleeps with both is already not performing the gender role the patriarchy mm-hmm. laid out for them correctly, so which is why that there's lots of social punishments for, for, you know, through homophobia and biphobia as well as transphobia. So trans people are another iteration of that is that we essentially break the rules of how your body, your biology, your social role, your behaviour, and then the work that you perform for capitalism should all basically coalesce around these systems. Um, and so, yeah, so in, in many ways, that's why just like women have been oppressed for centuries on the basis of their reproductive capacity, which is something, again, I keep saying I've always agreed with because a lot of anti-trans feminists think that I'm trying to erase the fact that like women are oppressed on the fact that they have the ability to reproduce. Obviously, not all cisgender women do. Um, actually have the ability to reproduce, but it is a source of oppression in the way that we've defined and categorised who who are women throughout history and how we treat women um, and what women's rights are. And so, yeah, so this is why, this, so an example of why this sort of stuff is relevant, this theory, is that because this is all about the roles of patriarchy, it's a patriarchal, right-wing, sexist, um, institutions always punish trans people just as they punish cisgender women. So, for example, the Trump administration, first thing they did was attack reproductive freedom for anyone with a uterus, cisgender women and trans people who can give birth. And of course, trans rights, you know, immediately Trump started rolling back federal protections Barack Obama had put in place, banned trans people from the military so they couldn't access health care from the federal government and started like looking to see if they could kind of allow insurers to deny trans people health care. And that's not unsurprising that now, obviously, Trump is gone, but the Republican states and the state senates that are attacking trans youth health care are also, as, as we've seen, like, you know, attacking Roe versus Wade or attacking women's reproductive freedom or trying to kind of like delay women, you know, push women to the edge and to, you know, to basically deny them reasonable access to pregnancy termination. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, that would be progressive. That would go on to contraception. And, you know, I do believe if these people had their way, it would quite quickly turn into like, homophobia, anti-gay laws. It's just that... Well, I mean, we've already know. heard that that's what they're preparing in Texas <laughs> yeah. is uh, is to take away gay marriage. Yeah, like, of, this course, is, of course. This is something that's, that's emerged going. in the last week. Yeah. And that's why it's so dangerous for um, left-leaning liberal feminists <laughs> to ally themselves with these people. Even if you don't, if you knew you hate trans people, particularly trans women, even if you hate us, it's that unfortunately these people, like even in the, even if you don't care about being like a decent person to us, it will ultimately harm you. Do you know what I mean? Because it, because these people, you're giving them the rhetorical arguments, you're giving them the ammunition that they need. And trans people are a very weak group in this kind of matrix I've described of like gay people, cisgender women, um, you know, and and the kind of patriarchy capitalism thing. We're a very small minority. So it's yeah. easy to kind of um, 
you know, if, if no one stands up for us outside our own community, then it's, it's very, e- you know, we're a very easy target. But ultimately, the progression will be to cisgender gay people and to eventually to all cisgender women. So to me, it's just completely bonkers. <laughs> one would, would inadvertently ally themselves or provide kind of rhetorical cover for the right wing that are quite obviously going to come and come for them eventually. Well, you pretty much open you pretty much open your book by talking about the fact that trans liberation would liberate everyone. Yeah, um, yeah, I do. I mean, that's the very first sentence. And what I mean by that is, I wanted to argue essentially because what? So the, the first sentence of my book is the liberation of trans people would benefit everyone in our society. Mm. And the reason is one that's true because most liberation politics movements, and this isn't just for trans people, that gay liberation socialists of the 70s said this, and um, black women socialist collectives, manifestos, it's in there a lot, the suffragettes in the UK, and probably, you know, like um, other women's rights movements around the world have often said, if you, you know, if you free women, everyone benefits. If you free the black woman, everyone benefits. Mm-hmm. And if you free gay people, everyone benefits. So it's not, this, it's because there's this idea that like, if we, rather than the glass ceiling model, where like, if you just smash through the person at the top gets through the glass ceiling but anyone beneath them doesn't is that actually if you start looking at people on the margins or at the bottom and you start improving their conditions you'd actually redistribute power and raise everyone up um and that's that's as true of trans people as anyone else and then the other reason that i put that right front and center was because i think people you know because this is intended for everyone but especially for people who've never really read anything about trans issues before, people who don't know any trans people, I wanted it to be accessible to everyone, is a lot of those people are so used to hearing about how trans people are a nuisance for them. And that's the media narrative, whether it's the right wing in the US or whether it's the Murdoch media or, you know, even the Guardian, unfortunately, (laughs) is Mm -hmm. that all you ever hear is, you know, these people are demanding, they want, you know, pronouns in your email signature, I don't want to do this. A hundred percent. And I feel as though there is sometimes treatment, like uh, even within the LGBTQ plus community and amongst women that I feel as though sometimes the rhetoric is stating that there's a fear that trans people are sort of sucking up all the air in the room. They're taking away all the attention. It's just like, well, you're making that happen by hyper-focusing on (laughs) trans people. Like they are the minority. All they're asking for is basic fucking human freedom, basic rights. It, it, It feels really petty and really scary to watch how much like people kind of feel threatened. This kind of, um, I don't want to use the diminishing term like oppression Olympics, but it's kind of like people competing for who is more oppressed. And it's just like, why don't we all work together to override these ultimate systems? So speaking of ultimate systems, because a lot of people listening to this are starting to hear more rhetoric around anti-capitalism. They're starting to hear, you know, and understand more about patriarchy and how much it infiltrates like every single part of our culture. What is your kind of practical advice for how we move forward and actually start to dissect and destroy these systems that are harming so many different marginalised groups? Yeah, and the reality of that is that that's no small task and it's incremental. And Mm -hmm. these movements throughout history have always been very slow, one step forward, two steps back. It's not as easy as you know, again, social media activism, for example, that's grown in popularity is perhaps like that's instant satisfaction. You know, you post something and it makes you feel good and you get lots of likes, but reality is nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. This kind of coalition building is what I guess I'd be interested in is, is I think one, one practical thing I think I would say to people is maybe expand your definition of what politics looks like. Politi- politics isn't just 
when it's an election every four years, um, there is more than democratic, classic, you know, what we call in the UK parliamentary politics. And I guess um, in the US, you would just, yeah, you would sort of let's say electoral politics is that politics takes many different forms. Um, there can be politics in terms of mutual aid in your own communities, care work for each other. But also, yeah, I think I think what the key thing is about this idea of solidarity, which is in a very like leftist term that's grown, I think, come back into popularity. And it's very different to allyship because allyship is almost, a, can almost sometimes be a bit like, well, I'm trying to help you. I, mm-hmm. I, I want to be a good person and help you. And that can almost... It, you know, in some forms, it can almost sound a bit like I feel sorry for you. Whereas solidarity, I think, is a bit more like, we don't have to understand everything about each other, but clearly the same people that are basically fucking you over <laughs> are fucking me over. So we've got a shared interest and we would be we would be much better at meeting our goals if we can work together. And that doesn't mean that we always have to like each other or that we have to like understand about everything about each other. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that kind of emotional, one person's helping the other, I want to be a good person. It's, it's, it's actually a bit more strategic. Um, and that's been the case throughout history. So for example, the gay liberation front in the US after the Stonewall riots, the Black Panthers um, as a black liberation movement, you know, they worked together closely. And often there was kind of, you know, not necessarily a lot in common initially. In the UK, there's an example of like that film Pride where the miners who are on strike against Margaret Thatcher worked with gay activists from London. And there were these like, you know, South Wales miners, some of them quite homophobic probably to begin with. And these kind of gay people from London, these kind of, you know, they considered complete mavericks and completely odd, but they worked together because they realized that they were both being kind of screwed over by the Thatcher government. So there are examples for coalitions, unlikely coalitions that have worked throughout history. And unfortunately we are going to need them more and more um, if we are going to kind of change some of these systems, because none of us can do it alone. And, um, you know, you can't necessarily, you can't overthrow your government realistically, um, no matter how much you might want to. Um, So it's about kind of like having kind of clear goals about, what it is in your local community, whether it's resisting a policy somewhere, whether it's um, whether it is going to take into the streets, as we saw earlier in Britain, with um, the government was trying to hold on to its um, powers, the emergency powers it gave, gave given itself in the UK for the Coronavirus Act, is that um, it was planning to re-entrench those. So you had the Kill the Bill protests, where people were, did take to the street groups, like Sisters Uncut. Um, and sometimes it will be necessary to kind of put pressure on governments through protest or through civil disobedience. That's that's always existed throughout history. But there are much smaller things you can do. It's about um, building collective spaces where people can have these conversations, where people can, you know, cross the divides of different groups and different identities and start to work out what we have in common. And I think we're a long way from doing that. And I think part of the reason for that is that social media, a little bit, a lot of us see we've we've done our learning on social media, which is good, but social media often rewards individuals and it gives it raises individuals up and it's about how many likes you can get. And you know, I, I have, have no idea what you now, mean. As someone, I've, I've, as someone that's come out with no. a book, right? It's like <laughs> I'm I don't want to be put on a I don't want to be put on a pedestal. Yeah. You know, there are people that are like, Oh my god, you're amazing, blah blah blah. And I you know, I'm very grateful for all that, but it's like yeah, but I'm not the trans movement. Like obviously I'm just I'm a writer. Yeah. Uh, but I know loads of great activists, I know loads of people who do that work. And I've, you know, I try and amplify their stuff. But, um, but like, yeah, just because I'm a public facing person, it's not all about me. And I'm, and that's something I'm going to have to contend with. I mean, it's, it's a first world problem, but it's, <laughs> it's about thinking about like 
yeah, don't, social media encourages us to make ourselves the centre and that we've all got to have something to say and it, and it fetishises discussion a lot. And actually, I think what we need to do is start thinking about getting offline and maybe building coalitions with each other in our own communities and across community lines as well. A hundred percent. I think I think you've raised a really important point there. And, and I, I would still like to get into more of the practical steps of solidarity. But um, we are in such a... I've been shouting about this for years of the self-cannibalising, the infighting amongst oppressed groups where we cannot... Like, we're so obsessed with nitpicking each other that that we end up distracted with one another and our common oppressor watches us and laughs as they continue mm. to get away with their billions turning into trillions and their rolling back of more and more of the rights that activists before us have fought for for decades and risked their lives for and and it's it's just it's extraordinary to see how pathetic the targets of social media are they're almost never the actual threat to people's mm. rights. They're just the easy mark that you can just feel like you're doing something, you know, and I think that that's, it's really, really frustrating. Yeah, often, well, it's often like, it's like the like, gratification of instant justice, isn't it? It's very similar to what I was saying about when I was using the example about feminists earlier, misdirecting their anger about these systemic things that have affected mm -hmm. cisgender women and directing them at trans people because it's like, well, trans people are in front of you. They seem new to you. They're weaker, actually, so they're an easier target than, like, actually directing it at, like, things that you men. can't seem to Patriarchy. change. Men, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 I think, and I think that, yeah, I, th I think there is an issue with that. I think is that we, we all probably have participated in it at times, if, we're, if we've been on social media <laughs> too much, mm -hmm. as which we, lots of us I will have been, is we probably all, at certain points, participated in it as well, both been targets of it and been participated in it. Um, if, if you're prominent on social media and, and, and it's that, yeah, it's that desire for in, that thirst for instant justice, a bit like kind of, um, blood sports in ancient Rome or whatever, is that like, it's gratifying to basically see people taken down, but they're the, they are usually the wrong people. And, and yeah, the trouble is, is that the advantage that like, if you like our enemies have, which is like the, which if you like is capitalist, it's like the super wealthy, it's the billionaires flying around the moon while like the planet's being destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and it's, um, yeah, it's right-wing governments. It's, it's Republicans who are trying to kind of crush everyone's health care and um, restrict everyone's bodily autonomy. Is that these people don't care about moral purity. All they care about is power and wealth. So they will happily change their morals and work with each other even if they don't like yeah, they each organize. other, they will because 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 wealth matters to them more than anything. Like whether or not they like each other does not matter. Like Trump would have worked with anyone that would have helped Trump. Like you know he doesn't he doesn't care. We about saw it in us. California. <laughs> we just saw it in California where you suddenly had like Caitlyn Jenner like spewing yeah. all kinds of fucking transphobic nightmare <laughs> nonsense to uh, try to suck up to Republicans, conservatives, and you know the kind of like the Trump yeah. clan. And you had people who had been historically so violently and vehemently, explicitly anti-trans, suddenly siding with Caitlyn Jenner because, okay, well, she's she's forwarding our agenda somewhat. Mm -hmm. So fuck it, yeah. let's just get in line and organise. Now, I'm not saying that we should just be like that. I'm not saying that we should uh, turn a complete blind eye to anything harmful that one another do. We just have to develop a better system of like, all right, that was fucked up. Don't do that again. Back to the main problem. We have to yeah. get better at that rather than this kind yeah. of obsessive like feasting that we do uh, on the kind of like corpse of a harmless individual. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's like how, you know, there's been things in the past where people who are, that's happened on social media, just to give a really simple example, is there have been examples of often like, uh, yeah, particularly gay men, basically, (laughs) who um, are very strong vocal trans allies now. And someone's gone through, you know, their old social media posts. And about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, sometimes they've used really transphobic slurs in their tweets before. But when people presented that to me as like a gotcha, I'm, I don't care. Like, I remember what the gay scene was like 12 years ago before there was all this trans visibility. And to be honest, yeah, a lot of gay men did use transphobic slurs mm-hmm. because they didn't know any better. I don't care about what someone said 10 years ago. I care about what they say now. And like, you know, frankly, I used transphobic slurs when I was a teenager because, I, you know, that was what was the language was used. I didn't even sometimes know how hurtful it would have been to, if a trans person had been around me. And I, I was one. Um, and so for me, yeah, I think there's, there, you know, there, like you said, there's gradations of it. But I think I care about what, like, current harm someone could be proposing and about getting them to stop that harm. It's a similar argument to what I say here about prisons is that what I want is a reduction in harm and violence in society. I don't care about punishing people. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that sometimes I don't want to. I mean, that's part of our nature is that sometimes, you know, if people have done awful things or you're really angry with them, you do kind of have a thirst to see them punished. We all do. Um, but we do, yeah, we have to come up with better systems for that. But I don't, you know, I think that's something that has to be done collectively. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I can give like a very anti-carceral guide to how we can all save the left. No, but I know. It's I, um, funny. It's funny. So the irony of how much that. we are anti-the-police and yet we police each other so <laughs> well, yeah, no, I rampantly. Know. <laughs> I do say that. I say some of the people that like have ACAB on their bio on Twitter are the biggest cops going. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah. Um, the the capitalism conversation of how we dismantle capitalism in and of itself is probably one for uh, another time where we probably focus <laughs> just on that because I I and I think that you're right in pointing out that the it's backing the right senators, it's backing the people who care about universal basic income. It's it's about making sure yeah. that you are uh, using your voice and your influence, even if you have. Even if you don't have a social media account, you have influence because you have access to any other individual whose mind you can change, whose yeah. vote you can influence or whose dollar you can influence them to vote with when they when it comes to backing different organisations or non-profits. Uh, you can change who's in power. Yeah, that's true. You can. I mean, those things are all true. And then, you know, there are you can put pressure on people in power too. I mean, we don't know what social movements are coming I mean, you know, we're seeing a rise in, we'll see more and more of them. Because what I would say to anyone who's maybe listening and unconvinced by this, like, oh, I'm not sure about this anti-capitalism stuff, is all I would say is <laughs> capitalism has been going, you know, for several centuries now. And we have we have now ending up in a climate crisis that has no signs of slowing down. And what scientists are assuring us is that our, in a, probably my lifetime, by the end of my lifetime, we will be seeing drastic social change. And that will either be because we are responding to the climate crisis or it will be because the climate crisis is causing such a crisis in capitalism, in immigration, in terms of like resources available to us, water, etc. Is that we, it will drastically change the way we're all living. And I think it's really useful to think about like, well, if we're going to have this seismic social change, which one would you prefer? Because I would prefer the one where we all get to live on a habitable planet and, um, and that, you know, that there are resources for everyone and that there isn't like this whole mass migration movement and the global north trying to keep people out because people have had to migrate because they can no longer live in certain parts of the world. And that is, you know, that that's not opinion. That's not my opinion. That's like, 
That's yeah, it's not dystopian. Fat. That's a reality that we're seeing right in front of <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah, and I, and I know that doesn't seem very tied to trans stuff, but I think it's all interlinked. And one of the things that when I was re- writing this book, again, is that I did almost retreat from making these radical arguments because I was like, no, no, what happens if people are like, no, they, they want to know how to be nice to trans people. And then you're going off on one about <laughs> all these bigger systems and you're, you're going to lose people because they'll be like, yeah, kids shouldn't be bullied at school. Yeah, they should have healthcare. Yeah, they should be able to get a job. And obviously like, yeah, all those arguments are at the front of the book. But the reason why I felt like I couldn't at least allude to some of these bigger ideas was because, yeah, it was because the climate, the climate crisis, all the data was coming through last year. We were in lockdown. We'd seen this huge change of how we lived our lives. You know, like after years of being told you can't work from home or, um, you know, there's no money left. Like there's no magic money tree. The British government used to say when people were saying that the benefits were being cut. And then suddenly it was like, oh, well, now we can furlough workers. Now everyone can work from home we can put homeless people in shelters because it will stop the spread of the virus. There was even talk at one point of releasing nonviolent prisoners, both in the US and the UK, like in New York. And, um, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it was ever seriously considered by lawmakers because they were worried about the precedent it set. Instead, they kept prisoners in their cells for 24 hours a day, which is really inhumane. But even the fact that some of these ideas got a bit more of a mainstream hearing than mm-hmm. they had before when they were previously laughed at. I mean, if you look at like the left in Britain, and the Labour Party when it was under Jeremy Corbyn and this very kind of soft left, you know, people were really just like, this is ludicrous. How can you think this would possibly work? There's no money for this. And actually the money was there when it, when it was necessary because of mm-hmm. coronavirus. So that really signaled to me like, look, this is this is a time not to be timid about what the, some of the changes are. And yeah, Black Lives Matter, there was a resurgence last year and then we've seen Extinction Rebellion in, in the UK uh, and, and, you know, Greta Thunberg and much more discussions about people are starting to get to grips with the immensity of the crisis in capitalism. And so why not? <laughs> if you're going to try and improve society for like a minority group like trans people, then you might as well start thinking bigger because we're going to yeah. need it anyway. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. To bring to bring trans liberation more into focus for a second, like specifically just trans liberation um, into focus, and thank you for talking about those bigger issues because I think that it it does appeal to the logic that most people need to finally get in line and just fucking help. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, I would like to talk to you about trans kids because that is especially in America. You know, as you you I I think I totally agree with you that it feels as though uh, transphobia is more openly rampant in the United Kingdom's media. We are still seeing a lot of transphobia uh, worldwide. And in the United States, one of the conversations that I see come up the most is this like fear around trans kids, this, you know, indoctrinating of kids to become trans as if that is a choice. 
as yeah. if that is the easier choice in life, as if that is a decision that they have made rather than just their innate identity. Um, yeah. And the interesting thing about that, I think the easiest way which uh, is if you look at all the statistics, all the data about what children who are trans go through in terms of school bullying. So like, for example, in the UK, 64% of trans people say that they're bullied at school and over half of them never tell anyone about the bullying. Um, one in, I believe, yeah, one in 10 school trans school children in Britain have received a death threat at school. Um, you know, I think it's just under half of trans people aren't allowed to be used, but aren't allowed to use their preferred name at school. So there's like children are being made to be trans. What incentive is there to be <laughs> a trans child? <laughs> I mean, there is none. Um, while we have seen like a reduction, fortunately, in bullying, homophobic, biphobic, and lesbophobic bullying um, of cis LGB kids, but it's by no means as much as a lot of straight people think, all this evidence shows that there's been no diminishment really in it for trans kids. And so there is like, you know, just logically, this idea that kids are being persuaded to be trans, who, like, why, why would they be incentivized? What would be the attraction in being trans? Now, some people will say, well, they're, they're, they're damaged kids and they're being misled and that they are gay kids is often that is that one is that like most trans mm. people are queer anyway it's not because this idea that gay parents are pushing their gay kids to transition to become straight <laughs> straight i mean that is a, that is such a that is such a <laughs> rampant argument is that yeah you know i mean even when elliot page uh came out as trans he was kind of temporarily shunned by lesbians who felt as though he was homophobic for having yeah, wanted exactly. to instead I, I, live a heteronormative life as a man with a woman rather than as a yeah. lesbian woman. Yeah, it was just I, bonkers to watch <laughs> yeah, the internet it is. do its thing. And I think, I think yeah, I think trans men get that a lot more because that because the narratives around trans men and trans women are a little bit different. I think because trans men are often seen as traitors to womanhood, or that they're so damaged, they're women who are so damaged that they've been misled into thinking they can be men. Whereas trans women are seen more as like threats, creeps, fetishists, perverts, yeah, you know, yeah. perverts. Um, so, the, so the way that transphobia works for trans men and trans women is a bit different. And then, yeah, with that example, so, but the reality is, right, so, um, yeah, I know a lot of trans men who did identify as lesbians um, before they transitioned ultimately. And I do discuss Elliot Page briefly in the book, actually, on a chapter on this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, like, all of them say <laughs> it was easier, frankly, day to day, it was easier for them being a butch lesbian than it was being a trans man. It wasn't like... I've never met a trans man. Like maybe there's a certain point when they start to maybe, if they can pass as cis men, that maybe yeah they just get treated as men and it's better than being treated as a gender non-conforming woman. I mean, I sort of, I sort of can relate to it a little bit because I came out as gay myself as a teenager, and because um, I knew I liked boys, and so that was the nearest thing. And I was in all boys school, which was obviously um, great. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and and but ultimately, like. I, I held off on coming out for, as trans for a long time because everyone signaled to me every turn. Like whenever I'd start to talk about it, it was kind of the messaging I was getting was like, well, can't you just be gay? <laughs> like we can sort of talk because, you know, this the change in name, the change in pronouns, changing your body, changing, you know, the things that your oh, parents... Oh, very inconvenient, Sean, for everyone around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's the thing is people are, you know, when they're not educated, hopefully, you know, I grew up in a slightly different time and I don't think everyone meant it in a bad way. They just were fearful for me. Is, you know, that 
there was no incentive for me that said, oh, you'll get to be a straight woman. Fab, better than being a gay. Like, no one <laughs> said that. Like, that that wasn't how it went. I mean, like, yeah, okay, now, because I conformed to gender in a certain, like, I was very, I very much stood out when I lived and presented and was read as a boy because I was read as such a feminine boy. But yeah, probably walking down the street, I got a lot more shit than I do now. But, um, but, but, I mean, that's years down the line. There was no incentive. That was not my end goal when I transitioned. Was like, oh, I'll get to a point where, like, actually, it's taken me a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of um, pain, a, a lot of things to get to a point where no one harasses me walking down the street. And maybe in a different society, I wouldn't have worked so hard for it. If I wasn't harassed down the street, I wouldn't have cared so much about my medical transition. But, um, but yeah, so so there's this kind of misreading, like this idea that yeah, gay kids are being encouraged to be trans. There's literally no incentive, and you know. To be honest, I think it's like how if you, yeah, I mean, why is it, why is it we are so afraid of people questioning or people actually, what is so bad about being a trans person that it's like, oh, well, if someone was gay before uh, or they identified as gay before and now they decide to transition, why is that met with such hostility or like with such confusion? It comes basically from this fundamentally supremacist idea that being a cis person is better than being a trans person. And that's what influences a lot of stuff with trans kids and trans healthcare for young kids is people are much more afraid of the idea that a a young person will regret transitioning because then there'll be one of those awful trans people, horrible, mutilated trans people, basically. And and how awful is that if they were actually not the whole time? And the numbers and are so misrepresented of that belief. ever happening, by the way. Just for anyone out there who's heard that argument, like circulated by uh, transphobic people, it, these numbers of people regretting their transition are in the vast, vast, vast minority. Yeah, they're very, they are very small. And what I would say about them as well is that, you know, the vast majority of people who do detransition, which aren't the ones that necessarily push to the fore in these arguments, a lot of people, de- trans people detransition, not because they're not trans or because they don't have dysphoria anymore, but because being trans is simply too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't know if um, some people might have read, who are listening might have read Detransition Baby, the novel by Tori Peters um, that came out this year. And one of the characters in that is a, is a detransitioned trans woman who's now like, he's a male character in the book. But it's because he detransitions after a really violent attack. And, and I know I've met people, worked with trans people who did that. Some people then retransition. I, I worked with a trans woman who's in her 50s now and she retransitioned five years ago, but she tried in her early 30s and she lived for three years as a woman and then detransitioned because none of her family spoke to her. She couldn't get a job. She was getting stuff thrown at her in the street. I mean, it was, you know, but she was miserable. She was miserable living as a trans woman because of how people treated her. And she was miserable living as a man because it wasn't who she was. And so that's actually a huge chunk of people who detransition. It doesn't mean that they've been misled. It just is that actually it's, if we had a kind of society, maybe they wouldn't need to. And then, yeah, there will be a very small number of people who maybe feel like it was the wrong choice. But the trouble is, is that the example, I again, the comparison I would make is, unfortunately, it's a bit like... Um, abortion regret is that obviously there will always be if we give women choice you give people choice over their bodies some people will make choices that are wrong for them and and that's not to 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 um deny those people empathy but what we can't do is like use some people's regret and and, and there's such a minuscule number of people's regret as a as a kind of sleight of hand to deny everyone else the autonomy to make their choices because that's what people do with you know in 
the first thing Christian right do, isn't it? So they get out women who regretted their abortions and then they sensationalize their stories and they say, you know, isn't this awful? We don't want other young teenage girls to go through what this woman went through. And they find really hard cases and that's how they, they campaign against reproductive rights. And similarly, yes, they, there will always be one, and it usually is like one or two in each country or state or whatever, that they can find someone who is there and says, I bitterly regret transitioning. But for, for them, there's like thousands of people who have had to, you know, kids in particular, who have not been able to access treatment in a timely way, have gone through a puberty that's really distressing to them. And that's irrevocable, that like you can't undo your puberty. You might be able to reverse some parts of it with medical transition, but there'll be some things you can never change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, and, and they are the majority. And what we don't, I think the trouble is, is what a lot of people struggle with. And I understand why some people struggle with trans kids, right? Is that like, it's, it's such a rare experience. And unless you know these families and you know these young people and you hear them talk about it, it's really hard to believe that even though we're actually cisgender children know what gender they are all the time, and we don't question that, mm-hmm. is that that we can't believe that a child profoundly knows that they are another gender. Um, and I, know, I can understand why that's hard. And you get people who say things like, oh, well, my kid thought he was a helicopter when he was four. And it's like, you yeah, know, I, I understand why you're making that facile comparison because you, you, you probably haven't met someone that's gone through this, but often the parents have never met or heard of trans children until their own child um, maybe starts expressing it. Supportive parents, I mean, and and yeah, and I think I think people what people don't grasp is one is that sometimes I think to unpick the idea is being a cis person better than being a trans person, and often often a lot of people deep down think yes, it is. In much the same way, I hope people don't think it's much about gay people now, but a lot of people used to say, "Oh, I'm fine with gay people. I wouldn't want my child to be gay because it's a harder life." And I think we're at that with trans. I think a lot of people are like, "Okay, well, some people have got a transition, but like, really, let's keep it to the minimum, guys. If <laughs> we don't want too many, like, we've got to restrict it." And actually, it's about unpacking that. Yeah, rather than actually unpacking the belief system <laughs> yeah. that one is better than the other. Yeah, and and yeah. and then and then from that too is that a failure to recognise, and I guess that's hard if you've not experienced gender dysphoria, is that not acting, not intervening sometimes to alleviate a child or a teenager or an adult's gender dysphoria, isn't like a neutral option. It's not like oh well giving you healthcare is the, is the, is the risky thing. So if we stand back and do nothing, that's the fair thing. No, actually sometimes for some people standing back and doing nothing is the harmful act. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we don't know why. You're denying them healthcare like, essentially. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Because it is health. And I think that's the trouble too, is that a lot of people haven't quite grasped that trans healthcare is healthcare. And a lot of people say, well, it's not a mental, I thought you said it's not a mental illness. So why is it healthcare? And I'm like, well, you know, not being pregnant isn't isn't an illness either, but contraception is healthcare because it's about, if it's contraception or if it's abortion or any reproductive rights, it's about a woman or a person who has a uterus's ability to say, I might want to have sex, but I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to carry it's a inside me. That would be, yeah, it's autonomy. It's like, I get to choose my own destiny. My body is not just a vessel for reproduction. I get to say when, I get to say where, I get to say how. And actually that can be intensely distressing. I mean, that's why abortion rights were granted in the first place, especially in the UK, was mostly because of fear of like women going to backstreet abortions doing desperate things. It doesn't, women will do desperate things. And similarly, trans people will do desperate things if they are not, um, yeah, if they're not heard, if they're not given the healthcare, if they're not given the support. So I would think, I would encourage that comparison for people who are like a little bit like, oh, I didn't realise 
I didn't think of it in that way as like healthcare because you are denying people healthcare. It's the same thing to me as like denying me my estrogen is the same as denying me my aspirin inhaler, you know? A hundred percent. And also like when it comes to the comfort, I mean, I get shit every time I say this, um, but puberty blockers are such a, a godsend because they help you avoid so many different and difficult, painful, extra things that you're going to have to do if you are going to make, you know, I don't know, like a uh, specific aesthetic uh, transition, for example. Um, and, they're, they're, they're re- and they're reversible. As soon as you stop taking them, you like everything, yeah. everything you know keeps going as it was a lot all, 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 all along. You know, and what's and you know what's the worst thing is that often the people and you, you know, probably the people you mean on social media, the people who are the worst about puberty blockers and are worst about trans healthcare are also always the first people to make fun of visibly trans people's ex- appearance. Mm-hmm. So if you get like a six foot four trans woman, you know, they're the first people to laugh, make fun of the her and all that stuff. And it's like, so you don't want you don't want the healthcare that would prevent someone being like tall for a woman not that it matters but like maybe she it matters to her and maybe she if she had had that option she would have liked to have blended in more also we live um, in such a also, fucked up society like you, don't, you don't want us to exist basically not being yeah. too melodramatic it's that you don't basically it's like in any form you just want us to remain in the gender associated with our sex at birth that's what these people want so the attack on puberty but often they'll say things like oh yeah but it's it's about bone density it's about the and it's like well all these things should be monitored like any drug there will be some potential side effects and i'm very pro research on that but fundamentally it's about alleviating a really strong psychic distress and and i think these a lot of these people are either very disingenuous or they're just completely unsympathetic to the reality of gender dysphoria we also have a lot of people who look at um, look at transitioning as something that, you know, they relate to the kind of bourgeois kind of elite, you know, and they're very wealthy and the people who had the money maybe to make the medical transition because of their level of privilege and those people who like the media has kind of signal boosted and said they are an acceptable trans person. Mm. Uh, they look at it as like a vain pursuit. Some people even love to use the argument of late uh, that actually it's anti-feminist to, uh, to you know, emulate uh, the appearance of the most stereotypical kind of patriarchy-led form of a woman, people getting their lips made bigger, their noses made smaller, their jawline shaved, etc., uh, bigger breasts, smaller waist, um, and never taking into account that we live in such a fucked up, dangerous society for trans people because we haven't done the fundamental work at base to stop the bigotry that often is, this doesn't come from just some place of vanity. This comes from a place of basic fucking safety. Any of my friends who've made a transition to look as hyper-femme as, as possible and it, it's so painful and, uh, and sometimes, um, you know, all operations can have their own kind of dangers and risks, et cetera. They're going to such lengths, mostly because they would like to get home safely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's the core of it, but also, you know, you know, women are generally yeah, pressured to look a certain is, way. This, yeah. And it's this transphobic lens and, and, and particularly, yeah. when I think here we're looking at trans women and the term that the, the trans feminist Julia Serrano coined was trans misogyny, which is a term I discuss in the book, but for people to, it basically is what it says on the tin. It's a combination of transphobia and misogyny. So it's directed at trans women and it's a kind of weird, it's like an intensive form of like, 
lots of forms of misogyny that other women get. So a classic example, yeah, is that I've always liked makeup, right? So I was some, I used to before I, I now don't tweet about anything serious apart from book publicity. But when I used to tweet in a more chatty way, I used to talk about makeup and there'd always be someone being like, you know, just liking lipstick, you know, that's what you, that doesn't make you a woman, Sean. And I was like, I never said it did. I liked makeup mm-hmm. before I like, and plenty of men I know like makeup, you know, like I actually have like clearly much more interesting friends than you. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I've never thought about lipstick being tied to womanhood. I just, I just was fucking talking about lipstick. But it's because, you know, there's this desperation to kind of do this like gotcha, like, oh, you're, you're basically, yeah, if, if you're, if you're interested in femininity at all, you've conflated that with being a woman. And, and that's not the case. It's that like, unfortunately, society tends to conflate femininity with being a woman. And so like, you know, for trans women, yeah, it's about safety. It's about being recognized as a woman. It's about like comfort going through, blending in and moving through society safely. So femininity is a very quick, quick way to direct people in the right direction of kind of like putting you in the woman box in their head socially. Um, and, and so, yeah, and then there's this double bind where if you're not feminine and you don't, and some trans women do not want to be, you know, they, there are butch trans women, there are gender non-conforming trans women mm-hmm. who don't, who, who, who would feel as awkward in a pair of high heels as like, you know, like, I don't know, like ma- many men, many butch lesbians, you know, they, they, they're, they're not interested in it. But like often if they're trans women, it's that they're told, well, you could make more, more effort or you look like a man, you could, shouldn't be in the men's toilets, you're creeping everyone out. And so you can't win, basically. It's a double bind. And the other thing I would say about, um, yeah, this kind of accusation that trans women are stereotypical in our femininity and therefore we're regressive, isn't it? It's like we're reinforcing gender. It's like what I think it's a bit rich coming from people who are 99% of the population. It's like, no one ever says that to me at the Emmys. Do you know what I mean? I've got (laughs) my like tits out. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm in a corset and I've got hair and makeup. I know. It's like all the people, it's all, those things are always directed at often sex workers and trans women like they're like it's those two groups in particular seem to be the the real kind of targets for this like oh you're regressive you're letting all women down you're you're reinforcing gender stereotypes you're reinforcing sexist stereotypes and it's like yeah well actually yeah if you look at any but the media any cisgender women in the media any award show like why aren't you going to you're you're bring up those people? And I, and I think I said this to you when we spoke um, recently, is that like what really annoys me is I've had it from women, like, and I'll look and I'll know, like it's, you know, feminist writers or whatever who've said this about me. And it's like, I know that she's taken her husband's name. Like her surname is her husband's name. And I'm like, why are you saying that I'm... I'm this like champion of really sexist, regressive femininity because I like eyeshadow. And yet, yet you've named yourself after your husband, which comes from a time where women were chattels. Like, obviously that's fine. And she's welcome to do that. And maybe, but it's, it's a sexist tradition that like she's reinforced, but like, we all reinforce sexist things sometimes because we, we all live in a society. We can't all dismantle gender. Yeah. You know, a lot of gender is very powerful in that way. So why target trans women of all, like, you know, it's always trans women that seem to be the problem with this. And I just think it's really disingenuous. Listen, you do such a fucking amazing job throughout this book of of presenting case studies that are incredibly diverse incredibly interesting um they uh the book made me feel incredibly emotional it also made me feel incredibly um empowered when it came to finally having better and more kind of as i said earlier bulletproof arguments when i am tackling these conversations myself as uh as someone who stands in solidarity i'm not going to use the word ally anymore uh i'm really glad that you pointed that out no don't be no oh my god please i uh i live to be called out (laughs) if you follow me on twitter sean uh you know that uh so i'm fine i'm a sucker for it um and so as someone who stands in solidarity with trans people i really 
like I, I so appreciate the fact that you've put the time and effort and energy into into such a well researched, well studied. Uh, you've just thought of you've thought of fucking everything in this book. I mean, you, you've covered everything. It's all covered. No, then, maybe there don't need to be any more <laughs> books. So I'm only joking. There need to be more books. Of course, there need to be books. We need to fill yes. the uh, the bookstores with. Um, but but you've you've set a precedent in this conversation and and armed all of us with uh, a a more like concise and intelligent approach to just um, hopefully being able to collectively destroy these stupid fucking arguments and systems altogether um, once and for all. And Sean talks about so many of these subjects in such great detail in such an accessible way. It's such a a fair and calm um, examination of these biases. and, And these are such intelligent solutions that you present in this book uh, for these biases and uh, I just thank you for such deeply logical and excellent work and I'm so sorry that you even had to do it in 2020 Uh, but I I so appreciate you. Can I um can I just end on a note based on the way that you ended this book where you talked about you say that's why some people hate us they are frightened by the gleaming opulence of our freedom our existence enriches the world can you talk to me briefly before you go about that opulence about the joy of being trans about the joy of your experience yeah well i mean i think i think where the joy lies in uh, being trans is, despite you know, all the difficult stuff, is mm-hmm. we're given a rare gift, which is to, we often have to find new ways of living and ways to adapt in a society that like often, even though we've always existed, sort of is built around the idea that we don't exist. And what that does is one, it gives us a sense of community that we have to find each other. And that's what greatly benefited me and then when we start to because we've resisted one of the most powerful forces that you know shapes our society which is the gender binary and basically said no this is wrong or whatever gender assignment and patriarchy yeah is it yeah i think it gives us the potential to see the world in ways that other people don't see them and for me that's meant that like you know i'm a 33 year old trans woman and i think like a lot of the things about how I envision what I could get out of life, what I could do with life are not the same as they would have been had I been cisgender. A lot of the people I've met, a lot of the work that I get to do, a lot of the experience, I mean, like, you know, even in my case, as I say, like probably from the background I came from, if I hadn't been trans, I could, I could have easily been quite, maybe, I mean, I don't think I'm Tory. I mean, let's not go too far, but I, there are, lots of, <laughs> there, are, there are lots of things that, you know, like I've been opened up to other discourses. I mean, I probably wouldn't have thought about a lot of the issues that I discuss had I not you know, and things affecting other people. Had I not learned to see the world from the margins or from um, a vantage point that, um, that uh, you know, other people don't even know exists. And that that's very freeing. That gives you choice and autonomy and a way to kind of cultivate the life you want to lead within reason. Um, and yeah, there is a lot of joy to be found there and freedom. A lot of people go around with a lot of scripts in their heads and have maybe never challenged them until they have therapy in their 40s or 50s. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, even though it's not been easy at times, to have been freed sometimes from the constraints of expectation. And there is a joy to that. And that comes sometimes from the freedom that we have to exercise as trans people in order to lead livable lives. Yeah. Amen. I think that's <laughs> fucking beautiful. And, uh, and for so much of my life, I've, I've looked upon 
that freedom with like envy and wonder, especially because as a kid, the gender binary and all of the constraints and the pressures of living up to uh, gender traits, gender normative traits, uh, like suffocated me as a kid. And Mm. it's taken me until my adult life to like figure out how to just walk through this world as me rather than according to what I'm supposed to be. I still fall into the traps all the time at the Emmys, for example. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm still navigating it, but, um, but I am so in awe of all of my trans and non-binary friends, gender non-conforming friends who have found that freedom at such an early point in their lives. Like that rebellion is just so inspiring and that rebellion against patriarchy and gender norms would truly solve so many, like the the basis of not all mental health issues, obviously, but that so much pain, so much suicide, so much depression often comes from a lack of feeling, just innate freedom to be yourself. And so to set that example, to set that example, I think is imperative to our like social wellbeing. Um, Mm. I, uh, I adore you. I was really nervous at the beginning of this interview because I'm really (laughs) intimidated by you uh, because you're so smart and great. Um, But, I also just wanted to say thank you for being such an accessible figure and and for being an example of someone who always manages to somehow retain empathy, even for the people you most disagree with. I think that's an incredible example of how to uh, further this movement is not to give too much empathy, <laughs> but to at least try yeah. to understand what it is that we're tackling rather than just demonize and dismiss. We have to try to understand that some people are a product of their environment and we need to kind of recruit them via empathy. Yeah, we do. To we have to stand win up some of these human people beings. over, yeah. otherwise we're screwed. <laughs> it's fact, it's fact. Um, Sean, before you go to continue saving the world, uh, will you please tell me what do you weigh? I weigh the amount of times that I've made people laugh in my life. I weigh certainly the weight of the book that I've just written, but hopefully mm-hmm. by the time I die, I'll weigh the weight of several books. And I weigh far too many carbonated drinks because I'm a borderline addict of like lemonade, etc. <laughs> so I will weigh myself in endless cans of lemonade and diet coke probably as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I I hope I get to properly meet you in person someday. Yeah, same. Because yeah, we keep meeting me in formal interviews <laughs> about <laughs> liberation, which is great. But uh, also, um, I just think you're an ideal human. So thank you so much for oh, making this you. time for me today. Um, and, uh, and all of the love and luck when it comes to this book. I really think it's going to change a lot of people's minds and hearts and i'm really excited thank you thank you so much for listening to this week's episode i weigh with jamila jamil is produced and researched by myself jamila jamil aaron finnegan and kimmy gregory it is edited by andrew carson and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend james blake if you haven't already please rate review and subscribe to the show it's a great way to show your support we also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code iWay. Lastly, over at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iWayPodcast at gmail.com. And now... We would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. Hello, I'm Gayan and I'm from Belgium. I weigh my kindness and empathy, my unapologetic loudness and humor.
my queerness and sexuality. I weigh my art and love for movies and books. And I weigh my mistakes, and there are many, and my ability to learn from them. Want to make Mom's Day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.